You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yo, welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. I appreciate you hanging out and rocking with the podcast, and we have got something fun and interesting and so historic on the podcast today. I am looking forward to it. This episode... I enjoy when I get to do episodes that are kind of like pilots. This episode is going to serve as the beginning of Maddie Lee's portion of House of L. So as I told you, like things were going to expand and I was going to add people to the podcast. And Maddie Lee, who writes for NBC Sports Chicago and I have been talking about working on a project together and this is it she wants to talk about baseball and I can't think of a more relevant time considering what's going on with the Mariners right now when we need someone like Maddie Lee to tell stories that go beyond some of the the ways that baseball has has purported itself her talking about stories and trailblazers and people who you need to know and making it a more diverse place. Um, I'm glad that she came to me with the concept of trying to show where baseball has lost its way when it comes to talking about issues of race and culture where baseball doesn't have to be just a white man's game and considering that she is a woman of color that is in the game, her perspective is a necessary one. And I'm glad that she is lending that perspective to House of L. It's really, really good. I'm looking forward to seeing the type of podcaster interviewer that she becomes and she hit a home run with her first episode it's it's rare that people will wow me with the first thing that they throw at me because the first thing is the the goal is to keep improving 
it isn't to, you know, go out there. Now she's raised expectations, though. <laughs> I don't know if she knows that. But she's raised expectations on all of this now. Because you can't come out the box with this guest on these subjects and and not raise the bar. Before I get to who the guest is, I wanted to let you know that the reason that we can do all of this stuff is because we have really incredible sponsors like David Hochberg. If you're purchasing a home after getting a divorce, then you need to do what I did and call Team Hochberg. Not after getting a divorce, just I called him when I needed help getting my place in Kenwood and my house in Hyde Park. He's your trusted local lender. Today, meet Barbara, newly divorced mother of three kids. Combined income with child support, alimony, and sales job, 120 grand a year. Barbara has heard thousands of Team Hochberg's ads, but contacted her realtor's preferred lender, which was a bad move. The realtor's preferred lender didn't answer Barbara's questions and tried charging her ridiculously high closing costs. So she called Team Hochberg which she would have done in the first place, Team Hochberg would have answered Barbara's questions, secured her a low interest rate with a reasonable closing cost. So do the right thing. Let's review. Barbara's realtor preferred lender did not answer her questions and tried drilling her with excessive closing costs. Team Hochberg answered Barbara's questions, secured her a low rate with reasonable closing costs. Team Hochberg helped me as well as thousands of my podcast listeners like Barbara. So secure mortgages after getting divorced, if that's something that you're going through, they can help you no matter what. 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Tune into Home Sweet Home Chicago, hosted by David, Saturday mornings on WGN Radio. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS number 1124061. Yeah, and David's... David's a really good dude. He's funny, and he will help you. He will get it done. So, like, if you're buying a home, talk to the man himself and tell him that you heard about him on the House of L podcast. It's helpful. It's necessary. We need it to keep the lights on. We need it. If you're, if you're, don't do it just to do it. Do it because you're actually looking for lending help or financial literacy help. He can help you on both of those fronts. 56david.com. Go check out the website. Speaking of which, another one of our great sponsors is Brendan Studzinski. He is a State Farm insurance rep on the north side, but he covers everywhere. And he reached out. He wanted to be a part of House of L, and I love that he wanted to be a part of House of L. He's up on Ashland. But here's the easiest way you can get to know Brendan and what he's about and raise money for a good cause. ChicagoSF.com. Really simple, right? Like State Farm, ChicagoSF.com. You get a quote from him on insurance, your house, your car, whatever, and $10 is donated to Paws Chicago. So if you want to help out the pets, all you have to do is go to chicagosf.com, get a quote from Brendan, and State Farm donates $10. All you got to tell them is that Loho sent me, and you will help out the pups and the kittens, all those things. 
with $10 for Paul Chicago. It's a a charity that he feels very strongly about. And he was like, hey, can we add this in? Can we make this a part of what we do together? And I was like, absolutely. Absolutely. So ChicagoSF.com for Brendan. Get yourself a trusted insurance agent who's going to help you out. Auto, home, property, business, life, health, and pet insurance. He does that too. So this week, Claire Smith is the guest. Maddie Lee sat down with Claire Smith. And if you don't know about Claire Smith, she is an absolute trailblazer. You talk about women in the clubhouse. This is like, this is the one. She was doing this in the 80s. She was covering a beat. The Yankees in the 80s. Now she works as an editor over at ESPN, but she has been everywhere. And you talk about someone with bona fides. She's done incredible research into the history of the game. She was instrumental in getting equal access into clubhouses. She's just wonderful. She's won the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. She's won the Baseball Writers Association of America Award. So this is a heavy hitter. And it's really cool that Maddie was able to get her right out the box. So inside of this conversation, they're going to talk about a lot of things. They're going to talk about how baseball has changed and hasn't changed since the time that that Claire Smith was covering on an everyday basis. How difficult it was for her to be the only woman a lot of times inside the clubhouse. And what it's like to be a black woman covering a game that's mostly white. Some great stuff in here by Maddie Lee. I really hope that you check it out. I'm looking forward to her doing more and more stuff. And I like her style. And I like that she she didn't just come with me with no nonsense. She was like, hey, how about I do Claire Smith for the first interview? Okay. That works for me. I'll have something to say on the back end of the interview. But now I'm going to turn it over to young Maddie Lee. Welcome to the first episode of More Than a White Man's Game, brought to you by the House of L Podcast Network. I am your host, Maddie Lee. And thank you so much for joining me at the beginning of this journey. I have been thinking about this podcast really kind of since transitioning from covering the NBA to Major League Baseball this past summer. And I'm so thrilled to team up with House of L and Lawrence Holmes to make this podcast a reality. The name borrows from something that Adam Jones said back in 2016 when he was asked why more baseball players weren't nailing during the national anthem. And at the time, he told USA Today, quote, we already have two strikes against us already. So 
you might as well not kick yourself out of the game. In football, you can't kick them out. You need those players. In baseball, they don't need us. Baseball is a white man's sport. And, you know, he's right that leadership in baseball is overwhelmingly white men. I don't think I have to point that out. It's pretty common knowledge. Um, You know, a majority of baseball players are white. Reporters who cover the game are mostly white men. But I also know that there are so many incredible stories and people in this game that don't fit into that mold. You know, this is a game that I fell in love with when I was six or seven years old. Um, Growing up in Seattle, idolizing Ken Griffey Jr. and Ichiro. And when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said that I wanted to be the first woman to play Major League Baseball, but then quickly corrected myself because I assumed, you know, someone, by the time I grew up, someone will have already done that. You know, maybe I can be the second or the third. Clearly, uh, that hasn't happened. And my career path took a bit of a turn. My uh, playing days are certainly over. My arm would not stand any more, <laughs> any more baseball at all, let alone professional baseball. Although maybe they'd help me out in the training room with some of their newfangled technology to get my post-Tommy John arm back to, back to snuff. But, you know, progress might not have happened as quickly as I assumed it would when I was a kid. But those are the types of stories that I want to explore and the types of voices that I want to bring onto this podcast. I think naturally I'll have a little Chicago leaning because I am here in Chicago and I do cover the Cubs for NBC Sports Chicago. But I also want to go beyond Chicago as well. And my first guest, who is an absolutely incredible woman, and I'm so thrilled to bring her on for this first episode. Um, And she will do just that, bring us beyond Chicago. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome in Claire Smith, who I'm so excited to have as my first guest. She was the first woman to be a full-time MLB beat writer. She started covering the Yankees for the Hartford Current in the 80s, went on to write for the New York Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer, and most recently was a news editor for ESPN. Um, And among her many awards and accolades, won the BBWAA's highest honor for baseball, formerly the Spink Award. The name's changing, and we'll talk about that. Um, but she was the first woman to win it and only the fourth African-American writer to win it. Claire Smith, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Madeline, or as we say informally, Maddie. Which <laughs> one do you prefer? I, go, I can go either way. Usually stick with Maddie. It's a, oh. less, a little less of a mouthful, but uh. all of Actually, all of the guys who I played Little League Baseball with, if you knew me before I turned about 10, you knew me as Madeline. So all those guys still call me Madeline. Okay. They were true gentlemen then. They went with the formal name. They sure were. (laughs) (laughs) No. Wonderful guys. Still, still, they were really the beginning of this career, you could say. Um, Sure. But, yeah. So... I want to start with, I just mentioned the Spink Award, so it seems noteworthy to talk about it now. What, what was your reaction when 
the BBWA announced that they're changing the name. I fully agreed with the decision. I voted in that direction, and I was fine with it until I had to try to describe to someone what the award was that I won. And it's kind of hard to do when the award doesn't have a name. No, <laughs> so, I just fell back on it like three yeah. times. There's yeah. a reason that we took the name off, and I just said it so many times. Right. It's like, uh, you know, um, X. Okay, we'll call you X or 007 or please, please, please name it after something or someone. Uh, my vote is to call it the Baseball Writers Association of America's Long and Meritorious Award, which is kind of the description of it. Uh, it goes on a little more about making um, historic contributions to the art of covering baseball. Blah, blah, blah. It's hard to get all that on the trophy, so I'm fine with BBWAA Long and Meritorious Award. We can just come up, just stick with the acronym eventually, right? Yeah, exactly. BBW so Annual Writing Award or, or, or what have you. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was, you know, uh, after Landis's name came off the trophy, uh, Bruce, Bruce Jenkins, God bless him, uh, San Francisco Chronicle did some homework and found out that uh, J.G. Taylor Spink wasn't someone that we want to stand in the bar and buy a drink for because yeah. of his, his radical um, reactionary segregationist beliefs. So another, another person gets outed and kicked to the curb, and I don't see any reason to cry for that. Uh, History will show his contributions, but will also show uh, the detriments, uh, the things that he did to try to to block his fellow citizens from pursuing their love, and that he's playing baseball. So who needs that? Yeah. I don't want my name associated with that, so Absolutely. it no longer will be. It will be associated with X <laughs> So you wouldn't you wouldn't name it at rename it after anyone at all. Uh, my preference is to name it after the association. We give so many awards that people are completely unaware of the fact that they're the writers' awards. Um, you know, people will say, "Well, the writers shouldn't be able to vote on the Cy Young." award. Well, you know what? That's our award. It's mm -hmm. copyrighted. No one else can use the title. So if you want to change it to the Doyle Alexander Award and, and make a pitching award, go ahead. But the Cy Young is ours. The MVP trophies are ours. Um, the Manager Player Rookie of the Year awards are ours. But most people don't realize that the reason we vote on those is because there are awards. <laughs> right. So but they didn't fall out of the sky and say, like, hmm, uh, I guess we'll have the writers do this. Right, exactly. The, um, as a matter of fact, if I recall my history correctly, um, baseball, Major League Baseball, approached the writers and asked them to do this. Um, so over the years, there have been overtures to have baseball 
take the awards over and and so on and so forth. And the writer's reaction has always been, well, you can do that, but whatever you invent or reinvent won't have the historic legacy um, of our awards. And there are other awards. Uh, the Sporting News has awards. Um, the Players Association has awards. Um, I imagine every individual chapter of the baseball writers have has an award. Um, I know the New York chapter, which uh, which I am a member, has its own set of awards. But when we have our banquet, the people that uh, get the most applause are the national award winners of the Cy Young Award guys and MVPs and rookies and managers and and so on and so forth. They come and pick up their national hardware. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I think if we're going to put someone's name on it, we may as well just put your name on it. So. Oh, <laughs> I think that would just be... Uh, I hmm, how do I say this? Um, no, no. Uh, there are short and sweet. Uh, just no. There, there are beat writers, um, past winners. I mean, Ring Lardner and all these guys, all these, all these famous, famous, famous people won the Spink Award, and and. Um, I just think everybody's getting really sentimental and emotional and they're not in their right minds when they say that. So <laughs> with, I say that with love that they're not in their right mind. Just calling me out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not you. I'm talking about all the people who planted that idea in your head. <laughs> um, well, what was, you obviously are very humble. What was that like for you when you won the award? doing you know all these speeches and media no. events where everyone's talking about how much of a pioneer you are it was amazing it's it's one thing to stand in that room when they announced the winner it was at a baseball writers meeting at the winter meeting the annual winter meeting they give the award they announce the winner and to be in that room with about i'd say 100 or so writers and, and have Jack O'Connell, um, Jackie O, the man, the good, the good newsman, uh, have them announce the award and have all those writers stand up and applaud. It's, it's pretty darned emotional. And uh, my best friend came in and outsider was allowed in, in the room with us. So she got to, to, uh, witness it all and there were so many women um, um, in that room that I couldn't see going up there and it, and making a speech or what have you without them all at my side mm -hmm. because we are a village and we support each other so so much that I wanted them to stand with me and um, as the announcement was made. But then I also asked them to join with me and give our male counterparts a round of applause because, again, we are a village and we wouldn't have been able to do what we did 
um, without them, going all the way back to Melissa Ludwig, who was the pioneer. She and Sports Illustrated brought the lawsuit that uh, kicked the first door open for women uh, when the courts ruled in, in their favor. But when the courts did that, the team that she was going to cover at that time, the Yankees, um, came into the press room and pleaded with the male reporters, pleaded with them before the locker room opened, pleaded with them to boycott going into the locker room if she went in. And uh, the reporters said, no, they weren't going to do that, that she had a credential, she should go in and uh, talking about Murray Chass and, you know, and, and some of the icons of New York journalism. So if they had gone the other way, um, I guess they had their, their Vice President Pence moment, and they said, no, this is, this is the only way this can happen. Uh, so I looked all, all the way back to that. And we gave them their uh, their applause, and then everybody sat down and got back to business. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So she won, Melissa Leggy won that lawsuit about five years before you started covering the yeah. Yankees, right? Yes. How, 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 much, how had things changed? What, what did it look like by the time you got in there? Well... You could always perhaps count the number of women that you would see from coast to coast, maybe on one hand. And I've always said, Maddie, that it's it's one thing to legislate something. It's another thing to change minds. Mm-hmm. So there were pockets of resistance, um, especially planted throughout the National League because the National League president, uh, Chuck Beeney had kind of a laissez-faire attitude. Well, it's up to the individual clubs. Whereas uh, Lee McPhail, the president of the American League, made a decision top-down. American League clubhouses are open to a credential reporters. I was blessed that I started out covering an American League team. So I never ran into any real dispute. Um, my first year was 82, and I got all the way to 84 before I bumped heads, if you will, with the team that under the laissez-faire policy had said no women allowed, that I ran into that team when I went to cover the National League playoffs in 84. So, you know, Lee McPhail, again, one of our, the unsung heroes, um, uh, the Yankees, by the time I got there, they were all in. They were um, being covered by Jane Gross, uh, the daughter of the award-winning Milton Gross and an amazing writer. Uh, Helene Elliott would parachute in for Newsday. Uh, Jane was with the New York Times. Helene was with Newsday. You'd see a sprinkling here and there. Um, the, the great Alison Gordon was up in Toronto. Uh, Lisa was out on the West Coast, Susan Fornoff, and so on and so forth. But 
it's nothing like it is today. When you go today, there seem to be millions of women everywhere carrying microphones, notebooks, covering teams full-time, uh, beat writers, columnists, um, s- serving in every capacity. And I saw when I got to ESPN, the women, it's all sports, obviously, they're producers, directors, on-field reporters, uh, play-by-play announcers, Susan Waldman at the Yankees um, calling calling the games. I am going to forget her name, but there's a woman uh, in Baltimore who was calling games, calling Orioles games. And to me, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that would have been a major headline. I found out that this woman was calling games because I was just going up and down the major league dial on MLB network. And I'm like, wait, wait, that's a woman calling a game. And it was just, I guess, just no big deal. She calls games for the Orioles. So that was pretty cool. Well, let me just say from me and my generation, thank you for, and to you and your contemporaries for, for really paving the way for us. Um, did you, did you realize at the time how, how groundbreaking you being on the beat full time was? I didn't realize to, uh, years later that they would delineate between what I did and what Allison did or what Jane did um, because I was covering 120 games and they were not. To me, it was one and the same. We were going into the same clubhouses and, and facing the same uh, challenges and and. But most of all, we're going into pub houses, doing our jobs, trying to get scoops, trying to write the best story, this, that, and the other. So you weren't really, really, really thinking in terms of, well, this is historic. I just mm-hmm. covered uh, my 115th game, so that's got to be a record. Didn't think about that. Um, thought about making a living. Um being the best that I could be, learning the craft, learning the leagues, um, getting those foundational moments where you could uh, show a reporter, I mean, show your fellow reporters, but also the players, the coaches, the managers, that you belong there. And to see that, that little light bulb go off where they said, ah, okay, she does know what she's talking about. Uh, or, you know, that that's an interesting question, as if that was a, a, a surprise, <laughs> a constantly surprising people. Right, a little um, backhanded compliment there. Right, 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 right. And um, I joke with Marley Rivera. I said, you know, you just keep hitting them with knowledge. That's all you, you do. And you see that little, again, that, that light bulb over their head that goes, ah, that's our aha moment when they go, ah, okay. Um, There was a a veteran Yankee in my first year of covering the team. 
And whenever I asked them questions, it was like I wasn't there or he couldn't hear me or he never acknowledged me. And after about a week, I kept asking him questions, no response. And then one day I was walking along the dugout. He was sitting in the uh, in the dugout and I walked past him and he just laughed. And after that, we were fine. I guess whatever kind of weird test he set up, I must have passed. And after That's that, we was, we was fine. Uh, which was good because he became manager of that team and then general <laughs> manager and then went back down to be manager again. And then, as George said, come up and second guess, uh, guess the team with the rest of us. And he went back upstairs. That was, that was even, uh, they were crazy. Um, well, who was the best interview from those Yankees teams? Well, I have to say that the person who really, really understood our job was um, David Cohn. And I think the reason he understood that is because he wrote for his high school newspaper. Hmm. He might have even been sports editor. But I never had a player walk through the process with you thinking along with you, sensing what you were looking for, and then answering it in such an articulate, cliche, um, uh, or without a single cliche, trying, you could see the brain working to, to speak in complete sentences, but to put a lot of thought into each sentence. Now, Bernie Williams did the same thing, but it was painful to watch Bernie. He wanted to just pat him on the shoulder and say, take it easy. It's not It's not having your teeth pulled. But he, <laughs> he was doing the same thing. But David was so smooth at it. In terms of content, um, nothing better than talking to the most uh, veteran person in the clubhouse, somebody that's seen a lot. Uh, come from something quite different, perhaps, than than your readers uh, uh, might have in terms of their backgrounds, their, their parents' livelihoods and everything. I thought that the players who gave you so much in terms of rich analogies and and very poignant stories where the players came from nothing, whether that was from the sugarcane fields of Latin America to the uh, sharecroppers' fields to the steel mills, um, the the coal mine, mining towns, um, uh, you know, the diaspora that African-American players who were born in the South and ended up in California then had to re-experience the South as youngsters in the minor leagues when it was really, really harrowing to do Mm -hmm. that. Those were the stories that I could listen to forever and learn from. And uh, I remember when I joined ESPN, one of the announcers, the 
lead announcers on Sunday Night Baseball was Joe Morgan. And Joe, I had covered Joe um, in his last year, if you will. I got to know him in his last year in, as a player and then watched him go through the process of becoming a Hall of Famer and then an Emmy-winning uh, announcer with ESPN. So by the time I got to ESPN, we were on great terms and all, but this was a new role that ESPN had created, news editor. So I was there to to um, kind of follow what my boss, or to follow what my boss told me. He said, keep us honest. I was to concentrate on the hard news, help the on-air talent, deal with uh, issues like steroids or this law or this uh, uh, grievance or this union and management battle to deal with them uh, in an articulate way to, to tell them, well, we need to address this or we don't need to address this, but to be there to make ESPN look smart and, and, stay honest so that outfits like Deadspin wouldn't ridicule us for ignoring something that should have been addressed. So you're the brains and the heart of the operation. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So, you know, when I first got there, Joe and some of the others weren't quite used to having that written out for them or suggested strongly or what have you. And I told Joe, I said, look, there is nothing I could tell you or ever would try to tell you about baseball. I learn something from you every time you talk about baseball. I just want you to please give me a benefit of the doubt uh, when it comes to journalism and mm-hmm. news. I'll never lead, uh, purposely lead you in the wrong direction. You're going to get my best. But we're here to work together. And and we did. I, so many former athletes uh, who went from the field to on air without one journalism class, they mm-hmm. were so hungry to look smart, to get it right, and to learn. I was I was always amazed at how how much these um, celebrated, gifted athletes uh, some of them were Hall of Famers. Uh, many of them went on to manage, but they wanted to not look silly on the air. So they were hungry for that kind of guidance. They, That's uh, fun. Yeah, Arl Hershiser used to ask me after every game, um, how was that and what could I have done better? Um, and and teaching them just how to ask questions other than yes and no questions, um, how to gauge what should be on the show. And and we'd hold up this kind of, uh, we'd hold it to a standard. We'd say there are standards and then there are ESPN standards. What do you think? Does this meet uh, what ESPN um, would want on the air? And a lot of times it was no. You know, we don't have to. We don't have to cover. Um, I don't know every every little thing that happens in, that the tabloids 
thirst for. Mm-hmm. That's not who we are. It's kind of like the New York Times. Um, some things just didn't meet our standards. Um, so uh, that's that's basically what we did for 13 years. And it's a lot of fun. We went around the world with that. London baseball and down through the Caribbean and it, it, Mexico and it was what was the best fun. trip I, oh. in your whole in your whole career best well, overseas trip I I went to Japan with a, an all star team but that was as a freelancer and I had my three articles that uh, interviews that were set up that would pay for the whole trip. And just happened to stumble onto the first first major league team, all-star team, that actually lost the series there. So it became a daily new <laughs> grind. It's like, how can you guys do this? How can you <laughs> end up making a story out of it? Right. Trip? You just uh, wanted to have your a nice yeah. trip and a couple stories. Yeah, exactly. There were four reporters, uh, U.S. reporters on the trip, and we all had it figured out. We were going to do this, this, that, and then the rest of the time would be ours, and we could see Japan. Now they ruined it. They did. They did. They were just goofy. But a trip like that taught me the value in those trips was that you got to know players that you might not have otherwise been able to spend quality time with in the U.S. because they were all superstars and they were always surrounded by scrums of media Mm -hmm. and all. I got to know Barry Bonds there uh, so well that I never had a problem interviewing Barry Bonds. Well, that's Which pretty was, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, unique to say the least. And my first year at ESPN, I landed right in the middle of his uh, chase down of Henry Aaron. We were following him every game. Um, we didn't have a reporter who could get uh, get out of my face from him, let alone an interview. <laughs> so I joined in late. Um, in the chase, he was one or two or three homers away. And um, I, Aaron Andrews was on the daily beat with him. Pedro Gomez, God bless him, uh, was on the daily beat with him. And nobody's getting anywhere with Barry. So I get there the night that he can break the record. Um, in and out off of off of the trek, but that I land in in with the crew that night, and Aaron's there, and and I asked, I'm speaking with Aaron, and she had never spoken to him, so I went up to Barry and I said, uh, I pointed to Aaron who's standing a ways away, and I said, Do you know Aaron Andrews? And he goes, Ah, oh, I've seen her around, but she's never um, she's never really come up to me to speak so he was noticing that she was noticing how tough he was on mm-hmm. the media so it so right there i called aaron over and i said i want to introduce you to barry bonds and they started talking like they were old friends and darned if he didn't hit the the home run to pass hank that night not only did he hit it 
Aaron as the sideline reporter got to go on the field and interview him and it was piped through the stadium. Huge. <laughs> it was so cool. It was so cool. So uh, and it was good. And but it's a it's always a teachable moment. Um, one of our uh, broadcasters, who was an ex player, um, award winning player, said before the game, "I can get Barry to talk to me. I can just tell him that I'm not going to ask him any tough questions." Hmm. And after the the uh, session, the ESPN pregame session breaks up, I took that player aside and I said, um, there are no preconditions in journalism. You can ask Barry for an interview, and then he has the right to say to any question you ask him, I'm not going to answer that question, or I'd rather not. I said, but you never agree beforehand to anything. And this player said to me, he goes, I didn't know that. No one ever told me that. Well, there's an example of players who don't have the opportunity to go to J school before right. they're thrown in the deep end. And I said, well, you know, that's it. And from that day on, that announcer and I were as thick as thieves because he was so thirsty to do it correctly to um, be a journalist, yeah. um, as good a journalist as he had been a player. And that was fun. I love those relationships. What is your approach to to building that rapport within, in a clubhouse? Because obviously that's a huge part of, of what you do, what we do. Well, you go in and it's a matter, my dad used to, say, and it applies to so many. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Different things. You have to prove what you are before you... What You have to prove what you aren't before you prove what you are. <laughs> so again, you go in and if you walk up to Bobby Mercer or Luke Nella or Dave Winfield, you have to have done your homework and you have to hit them with that. And then you have to really think about your approach to a story. What do you want your story to say? And then you ask, you ask what I term the five W's and the H and you get out of their way. Um, you know, why did you do that? What did you wh- what did you do? When did you do it the first time or the last time? You know, how does that work? How do you hold a knuckleball? How do you do this and that? And you just get out of their way. It's the the antithesis of the Chris Matthews interview where he says everything and then asks you if you agree. Or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I try to keep myself from asking yes and no questions because if you do that, everybody has a right to answer you yes or no. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to say anything else because that's what you just asked them. Um, I try to, I tried through my career to be fair. If, uh, the, if you're covering and uh, Willie Randolph is in a nine-game slump or hitless in nine games. That's what you say. He's hitless in nine games. You don't editorialize. You don't um, mock. Mm -hmm. uh, You don't belittle or you don't play, say, to play it the way the owner wants you to play it just because the owner might be a bully and, and want to jump up and down on the player. I always try to remember that no matter how big the player's uh, salary might be when that newspaper, especially if you're in the hometown, uh, when that newspaper hits the breakfast table, that player might have children old enough to read what you wrote mm-hmm. about father or mother, you know, from sport to sport. And so I never weaponized my writing uh did it keep me from being one of the the great columnists in new york or philadelphia of the 1980s through the 2000s yeah probably because i didn't rant and rave when i had a column and i didn't think that was the way to go about it and so it didn't get me on a lot of talk shows and stuff (laughs) like that which i a decision that I live, I live with to this day. No regrets whatsoever. But um, and I and I did see a player snap out, snap back at one of my friends on the beat on the first day of spring training. First day, and I knew this player listened to a lot of of. Uh, emotional stuff off the record. I knew why he was doing 
He was angry with the team. He was angry with the boss. He was, he was just angry. But I also knew that that reporter had never, ever written in a way that was offensive towards him. He didn't know that. Uh, this other reporter, um, my paper, his paper, were out of town. So he never saw what we mm -hmm. wrote. But um, I went up to him. Uh, I got the player aside and I said, what, what are you doing? Why did you do that? That writer has never been anything but respectful towards you. How could you do that? And I said, and also, if you keep doing this, you can't win. If you come in that angry with a chip on your shoulder, there's a saying, never go to war with anyone who has a million barrels of ink. You can't win that war. And you're going to shrivel up and die. This is New York City. There are nine papers traveling with you. You're going to run out of energy before we run out of energy. <laughs> and um, he called the reporter over and apologized and sat down and gave him an interview. And I have to say, from that day on, I think he changed tremendously. By the time he was traded, because of course he was traded, it was the Yankees, and all, all bad things come to an end. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, was uh, one of the most popular interviews that reporters had. Hmm. I mean, he used to hold court in the clubhouse because he was also one of the funniest people that we've ever met. And once he loosened up, it was funereal. I mean, it, there was a sadness in the press box because one of our favorite guys had just been traded. Yeah. Um, so he really, really turned it around and relaxed, at least with us. He's still fighting like crazy with management and with the boss. <laughs> but at least he wasn't fighting a two-front war. So that, that sort of thing. And I don't think that costs anything to, to have an observation like that. Um, mm -hmm. It helps you do your job and it helps them survive. <laughs> well, it, it speaks so much to how much he respected you that he was willing to listen and, and um, you know, immediately turn around and, and change. Well, you know, I, I used to tease them and tease a lot of players because they, for some reason, they liked sharing things off the record, on the record. But when they were really hurting there, um, they talked and, and you can't write this player, but this is what's going on and so on and so forth. And I used to tell them, I said, I'll listen to you all day. Um, I'll listen to you all the time but if i ever read what you're saying in another newspaper i will kill you <laughs> fair <laughs> and that's that's exactly what they do they laugh um, you know uh, one player was infamous for that and, and my peers in the press box they used to tease me they said you need to put uh put your 
shoulder or put an out of business uh, sign on your shoulder because they're just crying on your shoulder. <laughs> what, what are you getting out of it? Um, but the day that player was traded, uh, we all did the you know exit interview and everything, and and he handed me a piece of paper and it was his phone number and he said call me. So I gave him 20 some minutes to get across the bridge and I called him and he let it all fly. Hmm. Um, everything there. <laughs> and this time not off the record. Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny, I was sitting next to Moss Klein, a great uh, beat writer from Newark. And it's your desk. It's like school. You were just sitting next to each other in these desks in the press room. So I was typing things in and I was asking this player questions as quietly as I could and so on and so forth. But I kept looking over at Moss and I knew that he knew what I was doing and the story I was working on. And he just kept smiling. Yeah, yeah. Um, the people in that beat were terrific. Um, it's funny, there was such a trust there amongst uh, most writers that when you were walking out to the parking lot or something, and they'd say, okay, so what am I going to see in your paper tomorrow? Mm -hmm. What have you got? And they'd tell you, or you tell them, and your secret was safe. They weren't wow. going to run out and call their bosses and say, look, I just got this. I just stole this. It didn't work that way. Um, it was just like, darn it. I, I got to chase that tomorrow. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and you got until tomorrow to do it as opposed to now where it's like, oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think that those uh, kinds of trust would work today because the internet never closes. Never. Right. Never. And it's you exhausting. Don't know, <laughs> yeah. And you don't know half the people that you're competing with anymore. Um, I don't know. They, uh, there are so, so many outlets. And so I think people are much more cautious these days and, everybody's got so many jobs to do anyway with the camera and that cell phone on the stick and the, <laughs> this and the tweeting and the texting and the eye gramming. So we all look like go-go gadget in every, I, every scrum. <laughs> insane. I mean, I started out typing on an IBM Selectric typewriter. <laughs> Although I used to tell Murray Chass that I, I never worked on a typewriter and it would make him crazy. <laughs> just told him that to, to tease him. So, oh, that's so good. Yeah. You, this is, I'm sure, tough to narrow down, but do you have a favorite story or favorite few stories from your career? That I thought we could go with ones that made into print or anecdotes that didn't. I'll, I'll go either way. I have to tell you, um, my favorite um, story that I wrote, it was my favorite in part because it was a great story, but it also um, spoke to just 
having to stick with it. Um, mm. Phil Negro was traded to the Yankees and he was in the midst of his chase for 300. The Yankees also employed a pitcher named Joe Negro, who was Phil's little brother. And between the two of them, they might have been funniest, goofiest guys. They were also the oldest players in the clubhouse. Phil was in his 40s as he was going for this, and Joe wasn't much uh, too far behind him. But they threw the knuckleball, so they didn't have to practice hard because you <laughs> didn't. Phil used to say, ah, running, it's overrated, you know, that, that sort of thing. But I anyway, I should have been a pitcher. <laughs> right. No, the, all the other pitchers ran, but Phil wouldn't run because his weight <laughs> was overrated. He was also in his 40s. So, um, but um, Phil, like other, uh, most other pursuers of 30, 300, ran into awful luck trying to get there. And it was, you know, failure on the first try, failure on the second, and it was really dragging on. Uh, very painful to watch. Um, some guys were lucky. Tom Seaver, 300, immediately after 299. But other people really suffer from the pressure or what have you. Phil was suffering. And at the same time, Phil and Joe's father was in failing health. So they had that on their on their minds and you know, Joe was fearful that the Yankees might release Phil. Uh, Don Sutton once told me when you're chasing a record like that, the biggest fear is that teams won't understand the difference between you being finished and you being in a slump. Hmm. And the Yankees were in a pennant race. Steinbrenner was seething that Phil, more attention was being uh, paid to, to the the streak, then the pennant race, blah, blah, blah. He was also upset because the team obviously loved Phil and maybe they were pressing a little bit and so on and so forth. So uh, we get to Baltimore and Phil's now taking requests for the obligatory three feature on the 300. And uh, he sets up an interview that uh, paired me with my friend Tom Padola of the Westchester Rockland Papers, same fellow that had been uh, told off by the other player. And so we agreed to meet in the lobby of the Cross Keys Inn in Baltimore uh, to do this interview. And Phil comes in and he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders and he sits down and this is a pitiful interview just uh just going nowhere it was oh. like having your teeth pulled um tommy and i are looking at each other like what is what is this about so he gets a part where he talks about just how people probably don't understand how much work the trainer has to do on him not only after games but before games because he's got to get this 40 something year old body out there again and again and again 
So finally, just kind of out of exasperation, I say to him, what do you, then what do you do this for? And Bill said, I do it for him. And both Tommy and I kind of perked up and Mm -hmm. who was him? Uh, My father. I do it for him. And out comes a story that it was as good as coal miner's daughter. Um, the man who worked in the coal mines and then steel mills down in um, southeastern Ohio, which was coal country, steel country, um, a little town there that produced a lot of great athletes, but it produced Phil and Joe with this very special pitch, the knuckleball, which their father taught them because he had pitched semi-pro when not working in the coal mines. Hurt his arm, couldn't throw fast anymore, but taught himself the knuckleball. And that's the pitch he taught his sons. And they threw it from the time they were little boys most knuckleball pitchers learn it in the major leagues after they suffer an injury and and need a specialty pitch. So they tell the story of their dad and how he'd come home and be covered in coal dust or the dirt of the steel factory and not even um, go wash up, but would lay on the floor while they were finishing their dinner and take them to the backyard. Just teach and teach and teach. And uh, so he tells us the physical ailments that uh, that their dad is going through and, and how it's, it's getting pretty dire. And, uh, but he sits on the porch every night that they pitch and if he can call, pull their games in um, from Atlanta, they'll pitch in Atlanta before New York. And Joe was down in Houston before going to New York. Um, He'd pull them in on the radio. Wouldn't watch them on TV. That was too stressful. But he would listen to them the old-fashioned way on the radio. Um, How he hated the games where Joe would pitch against Phil. Hated them. It just tore them in half. It tore their mom in half, too. Um, to us, it was always, oh, it's a great story. Right. Um, and to Joe, it was like, yeah, I won five to four. I beat him five times to his four. And the winning game was when I hit a home run off of him. It was the only home run that <laughs> Joe ever hit. And he never let Phil know it. But oh, all I'm these, sure. Yeah. All these anecdotes spill out about childhood and Oh, by the way, my best friend growing up uh, was John Havlicek, and we were on the football team and the baseball team together and the basketball team. And, and it's like, uh, yeah, John Havlicek, the Hall of Famer? Yeah, yeah, John Havlicek, the Hall of Famer. And um, how they loved to, their roots were so strong that he and Joe uh, are Polish Americans, were Polish Americans. and Whatever major league town they were in, they'd go and find a polka dance. 
And when they were together in the Yankees, they would just steal away and go polka dancing every chance they got. Um, and then when the dad had gotten sick that summer, when they weren't pitching, they'd hop on a plane and fly to Ohio and then get back in time for their turns in the rotation. So that led lent to the fatigue and and uh, so this was a story that we wrote. And I wrote it when I was with the Hartford Current, and the paper ended up nominating it for a Pulitzer. Didn't win, um, but they nominated it, and it meant the world to me because it was such a special story uh, article to me. Um, after it was published, Bill continued to struggle, and their dad wound up in the hospital and slipped into a coma as the season was winding down. He and Joe were running back and forth. And of course, you, at that point, you know, you keep an eye on them and you kind of uh, put it in the notes what they're doing and the condition of their dad and everything. And that 300th win came on the last day of the season came the day after the Blue Jays eliminated um, the Yankees from the pennant race. Of course, the Yankees were always eliminated on the last day or the, day, the second to last day because George had made a mess for just so long as to get them off their games. And, and they just ended They were the winningest team in the 1980s and only went to the playoffs in 1981. Uh, it was the longest stretch of Yankees not being in the postseason in the history of the franchise. And they all blamed it on George, and he blamed it on them. But anyway, so uh, the Blue Jays eliminate them with a victory on the Saturday. And the Sunday, Phil gets the ball and pitches a complete game that he hadn't done that in forever. And uh, tells us after the game that he pitched the whole game without throwing a knuckleball because he wanted to prove that he was a pitcher. And until the last inning when Tony Fernandez grounded out and he's, he's running back to the Blue Jays dugout, says to him, why you put butterfly in your pocket? And uh, so he decides to throw his, um, he gets... Daryl Evans, his old teammate from Atlanta, his old buddy, down in the count 0-2, and he throws the one and only knuckleball of the game to strike out Daryl. And uh, it turned out that was the last pitch he ever threw for the Yankees because they they released him in the following spring training. Um, but it was it was a saga to cover that I, I had covered. Um, 300 game winners, but only as visitors, but to kind of walk through the season uh, with one as he went for that record was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that's that was such a story. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful and heartbreaking. And I, I like, as you're telling the, the interview part, I was like, oh my gosh, I know that feeling where just not. No question, no angle is getting anywhere, and to have a breakthrough like that must have been 
awesome. Right. I think that's the moment uh, that solidified um, in me what my favorite question will always be, and that's why. Why, why did you do that? Why do you do this? Why did you say that? Why didn't you do this? Uh, you know, I think that's the best question there is. And um, again, the antithesis of Chris Matthews, you you ask your question short and sweet, and then you get out of the way. Um, that gives them so much room to spread and, and fill in, you know, color, in all the all that needs to be covered on an empty canvas we don't have to do the coloring they are more than capable of doing coloring themselves so um yeah that was a good one uh most dramatic and so traumatic um was sitting in the upper deck at Candlestick Park when the earthquake hit in 89, and then spending the next few days as a news reporter, uh, mm -hmm. going to the epicenter and seeing the collapsed, uh, the collapsed mall there as, as they were still trying to, to figure out if there was anyone alive in the mall. And these, oh. these, uh, fatigued, uh, worn out, weary police officers and uh, locals going in there with search dogs and everything. They offered to take uh, the reporters in. Three of us rented a limo to go from San Francisco to Santa Cruz, the epicenter, and, and rode down the Pacific Coast Highway. And there were people on the beach and uh, we saw horseback riders and people just living their lives all along the highway. And then you get off the highway and you go into this town that's just completely destroyed with a tent city in the middle of the town because the houses are so unstable um, to be in and just devastation. So we we're at the at the mall and interviewing some of the first responders and and getting their stories of how weary they are, but how they refuse to give up hope that they might find people in this collapse mall. And then all of a sudden there was this amazing racket. Um, we'd felt the aftershocks, so you didn't know what the noise was, but, um, Pretty soon it was clear there were helicopters, military helicopters flying over and past us and dropping down. So we assumed that they were landing. And sure enough, um, next thing you hear are boots on the ground marching towards the mall. And here come the, uh, the National Guardsmen. And as they came up the street, uh, they were uh, just, they would tap the, the, the policemen and, and women on the shoulders and just relieve them and just mm -hmm. take their spot along the street until they, all, the, uh, all of them were gone. 
Um, so uh, that was pretty pretty dramatic yeah. being in San Francisco, which was half blacked out, but half alive with restaurants up and running minutes after the earthquake hit. And we drove from uh, a teetering stadium um, uh, into a section and where the restaurants and, and life was as usual and stopped and had dinner on the way back to our hotels, which were blacked out because they turned all the natural gas and electricity off. They didn't want the electricity igniting any uh, gas leaks and the city runs on that natural gas. So it was bizarre. Wow. That sounds so intense and yeah. quite a, you know, obviously sports reporters are reporters first and foremost, but that's such a departure from what we do every day. I know it had to be the most well uh, chronicled earthquake in American history because you had, um, that's, those were the days where 800 media members would show up at the world series and most stayed to cover the earthquake and the aftermath of uh, the national reporters couldn't get in because the national news reporters, because the airport was closed. So mm-hmm. you stayed and, and within a couple of days, we got the tap on the shoulder because the national reporters are there. <laughs> the, the big boy and girl reporters were coming in. I'll never forget our national reporter um, looking over my shoulder as I was writing a news story. Well, make sure that you mention this. It's right there. Make sure you <laughs> say this. It's right there. Make sure. I, I got this. You know, we're reporters who happen to cover baseball. We're not baseball reporters. We know how to do this. And we know how to do it on deadline. <laughs> we know how to do say. You know, uh, with a walk off, <laughs> that's the, that's the craziest deadline you'll ever hit. Yeah. yeah. We, we know how to type and, uh, but in the eighth inning, Dave Forgetty did this and <laughs> we know how to write a lead. We, we know how to do this. So it was fun. I mean, let me take that back. It was illuminating. Mm-hmm. Nothing fun about an earthquake. Um, nothing whatsoever. My brother lived there um, with his girlfriend, and I'd gotten them World Series tickets. Um, they were at a bus stop and waiting to, they were going to ride the World Series um, bus. They were doing the whole nine yards. They were going to get all the experience. They were going to jump on that World Series uh, bus and go to Candlestick. And before the bus arrived, a car coming the other way lost control and plowed into that bus stop. Um, my brother's girlfriend had her leg mangled. Uh, so they were in an ambulance together when the earthquake hit. And um, if they hadn't gotten in that ambulance, they wouldn't have got to the hospital. Um, but I had no way in this was before there were cell phones, really. I had no way of reaching my brother and couldn't reach him for over a day because all the telephone lines were down. And you could um, 
you could call out um, if you use Major League Baseball lines and I could reach my parents back in Pennsylvania. But they hadn't heard from my brother. I hadn't heard from my brother and I was losing my mind. And finally, we got in touch and he came over and he stayed at the hotel with me. Um, uh, it was it was that hairy. It was that emotionally draining. Um, there were reporters in tears because their children were begging them to just get out and come home and, and so on and so forth. So every reporter eventually had to make that decision. My boss told us we had three reporters at the series. Those were the days. Um, but he told us, he said, you can stay. Um, you can go anywhere west of the Mississippi until the World Series starts. But if you come east of the Mississippi, uh, you have to come home. Um, he was willing to pay for any trip anywhere if we needed that mental break to get out of the city. It took 10 days, I think, for this, before the series resumed. So I went to Seattle to see my best friend from high school. And we did the wine tours. We did the whole thing. We, we had fun. And then I, I flew back to San Francisco as we were walking down the jetway into the airport. It started shaking. It was an aftershock. And all I could do was just laugh. It was just nuts. Well, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, um, but I've heard you say to groups of students, like, be ready. If you have to go cover a news event, go, you have to be ready to go cover a news event, which you clearly have experience with. Uh, but if you were to just pick one piece of advice for this generation of sports writers on how to make an impact in this field, what would you say? Do you. Um, don't let anybody, whether you're in TV and somebody's trying to change your looks or, or make you do something uncomfortable because they think it's sexier or more provocative, you know who you are. You do you. And that goes for writers because you can make yourself crazy by looking this way and that way and seeing how uh, veteran reporters do it. And you might find yourself mimicking them. It ain't going to work. You have to just say, look, I got this far and I know where, I know what my talents are. I know what my preferences are. Be true to yourself, but also protect the profession. It's our obligation to take care of this profession. And I think that we've seen more than ever that there are a lot of would-be journalists who have really big platforms right now, and they use them um, to the detriment of journalism. They call themselves journalists and they're entertainers or they're provocateurs or they're whatever, but they're not journalists. They're not um, people walking around with degrees and four years of learning 
absolutely how to do it right, learning those five W's and the H. <laughs> H um, learning what a lead is, learning what news is, learning the value, the ethics of, of the ethics and the mores of, of what we do. We protect the job. We're the fourth estate and we have to represent it as if our, not only our livelihoods, but the life of our nation and our society depend on it. Because we just found out it, it both really do. Um, so you do it and you do it correctly from the moment you walk into a press box, a, um, a news briefing, if you're in news, if you're covering the tiniest little towns, uh, town hall, you give that everything you have because you owe it to the people who are reading you or listening to you on the air. And you owe it to yourself and you darn well owe it to your university or college. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap this up than that. Thank you so much, Claire, for joining me. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. And thanks to Lawrence Holmes, our wonderful producer. I will see you all next time. All right, Maddie, let's do this again. Yes. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful of Claire to lend her time and her talent to Maddie's podcast. Like that's dope. And that's when you hear about older people that are in businesses, like it's important that they play a role in nurturing, in my opinion, in nurturing younger people. I believe in the concept of lift as you climb. And this was a really good example of that. It's also a lesson for the rest of us too. all the things that Claire Smith has gone through, all the things that her experience can teach us when it comes to not just covering baseball or whatever, but in our approach to doing lots of different things, to, to understanding the world that we're living in. And I appreciate her being so open to work with Maddie and, and be on the podcast. Like that's, that's a, a really good get to get on your first try on this. And I appreciate Maddie for working hard and coming up with the concept. And you've seen what's happened in, in Seattle right now where you have the president of the team out here making com comments about a Japanese player and a Latin player who's trying to learn English and these are all things, these are some of baseball's biggest problems is that they can't get out of their way. They talk a good game when it comes to diversity, but they they fumble over themselves over and over again. And it's why it's one of the reasons why I wanted to give Maddie a platform to not just share the experiences of other people who work in this business, but to share her experience as a woman of color working in this business and what it's like for her. It's a, a place that I'll tell you that 
it feels uncomfortable sometimes when you're dealing with some of this. It feels uncomfortable when you look around and you don't see people who look like you. And that's not to say, like, all of the reporters, I, I haven't had a bad experience with any white reporters in Chicago. Like, covering games, like, I've never had any issues. And for the most part, I haven't had any bad experiences with people inside the game. But there are certain instances where a different perspective is necessary. And I'm glad that in some places we are branching out on who's telling the stories, who's covering the stories. And I'm glad that Maddie Lee is one of those people that's out there telling the stories. And she's going to be telling stories now on House of L, and I couldn't be happier. If you are looking for a way or looking for someone to help you out insurance-wise, you want to get a new insurance person, I got the guy for you. His name is Brendan Studzinski, and he works out of Lincoln Park at State Farm. And all you have to do is go to chicagosf.com, and then you can check it out for yourself. Get a quote. When you get a quote, it's $10 to pause Chicago. State Farm is going to donate that. Just tell them that you learned about it on House of L, and we're going to donate $10 to Pause Chicago. We're really glad that Brendan jumped on. After I get a couple of things, I haven't told him this, but after I get a couple of things cleared up because I'm doing some renovation stuff, I'm, I'm going to move over, and, and he's going to be my insurance guy because I, I like to make it so that I'm not just telling you you should roll with this person or that person that I'm actually walking the walk to and as soon as I get this renovation stuff done he is going to take over all of my auto house and everything else he doesn't know that yet we'll we'll find out if he actually listens to the podcast (laughs) all right I've talked too long but I haven't talked about David Hochberg if you're looking for someone to finance your new home search or refinance the home loan that you already have, you need to hit him up. He is he's one of my favorite people. He's a loon and he works hard and he will go through a wall for you. And if you're looking for financing, you're trying to be like, hey, man, I, I want someone to be able to walk me through all this stuff. He's your guy. 56david.com is his website that you can check out and you can learn more about him. That number is 855-56-DAVID if you're a, someone who likes to call. But I suggest going to 56david.com, seeing what he's all about, and then hit him up and be like, hey, I heard about you on House of L. Lauren said that you're a loon, but you're going to take good care of me. He'll respond to that. I appreciate your support, your continued support, of this podcast. I really do. I will tell you. And I, don't, I haven't decided yet. I haven't decided. If I'm going to do a whole episode on this. Probably. I'm in the middle of my negotiations. With the score. And. House of L is part of that negotiations. For some reason. 
and I haven't decided if I'm going to do a whole episode on it yet, but I imagine that I will. Because there's a lot that I do want to tell you, and there's some choices that I have to make, and it might mean making some sacrifices. We'll see. It might also mean that I go maverick, but we'll see. I'm working on the best solutions to all of these problems. I'll explain. You know what? I'll just do an episode. Instead of being cryptic, I'll do an episode and then you can figure out what I'm talking about. Thanks to Maddie Lee. Thanks to Claire Smith. Thanks to David Hochberg. And thanks to Brendan Studzinski. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Your support means the world. Subscribe, especially now that Maddie's on board. Subscribe and you'll get all this stuff immediately. We appreciate you. Peace. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.